Please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as, an, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will become the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. If you want to follow in your Bibles, you should uh, stay in 1 Peter chapter 4 as we'll try to understand this passage in light of our sermon series, which is titled... Reflecting Christ in a Post-Christian Culture. A few months before I graduated college, I was going through a tremendous time of distress. I had this inexplicable anxiety that had essentially frozen me. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't function. I, I was adrift without purpose, without a plan, without an anchor in life, and as I tried to deal with this, I thought uh, my, my brother was a really troubled person, but he became a Christian, and, and he developed this incredible peace. And so I thought, well, let me turn to God. So I, I went out in to pray for God to, to take this burden away from me, and the result was I was directed to a prayer meeting that was going on. And after that prayer meeting, one of the, the men there turned to me and said, uh, he started sharing this message. And it began, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That struck me. That sounded great. That's what I wanted. And when I heard those words, I, I envisioned a life of peace, a life of purpose, a life of hope, a life of joy, and that is what we get in Jesus Christ. I did not envision adversity, suffering, persecution, marginalization. That, that wasn't in this wonderful plan that God had for my life. Um, Peter, the author of this book, perhaps experienced something a little similar he heard Jesus' words, I come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. It was shortly after that that he realized uh, that life wasn't uh, everything of peace. And as he saw Jesus being hunted, they sought his death, he rose up and he said, I, I'll stand with you. I'll, I'll die with you. And yet uh, he couldn't hold up those words. Finally came 
when a little servant girl approached them after Jesus was arrested and said, weren't you one of the disciples with him? And Jesus, and Peter denied Jesus over and over and over again. And now he writes a letter of how to endure suffering. It's because he was transformed by the resurrection of Christ, by the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he willingly suffered persecution, was arrested, beaten, and eventually he was martyred. And so he really knows how to fail, but also how to succeed. And so he writes now to churches in Asia Minor that are facing persecution. And it's a growing persecution. And so he, he writes to them, and he tells them, he gives them God's perspective. And that's the pathway for them and for us. Let's pray. Our Father, this is your word, uh, and we thank you that it covers not only, speaks not only to, to two millennia ago, but it speaks to us today. Open our hearts. Each of us is at a different place in our journey with you and in our experiences. So Lord, take your word and meet each of us where we are today. In Christ we pray, amen. You know, when, when we're faithful to God, we expect to be rewarded. We do not expect to be persecuted. And I'm sure that's exactly what the readers of 1 Peter were, were feeling. Uh, why me? Why am I getting this treatment? Uh, I've been faithful to you. I follow you, and, and I get persecuted, and I'm still faithful to you faithful to you, and I am persecuted even more because of that. I'm not just persecuted, I'm persecuted for following you, for being faithful to you. And so a lot of questions could be swirling around in their minds as they could swirl around in ours as well. And so what Peter's going to say to them is, first, realize that suffering is included in God's loving plan. And then secondly, he's going to say, Suffering leads to glory. And then he warns them, now don't suffer because you deserve it. Don't call suffering upon yourself. And then fourthly, he answers the question of, but what about those who are persecuting us? It's not fair that they get away with it. So let's, uh, let's dig into the text. We begin with, the suffering is a part of God's loving plan. We pick up in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now notice the first word of this passage. Beloved. They may not be feeling the love of God when they're suffering. So, Peter's going to anchor in them, that, them in that love. You are beloved by God. Don't, don't judge God's love for you by what's happening in your life. Judge God's love by what happened at the cross. If he gave his life for you, if he loved you that much, do you think he left that love at the foot of the cross? 
No, he, he loves you. And he has a plan for your life. But don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if that plan includes fiery ordeals that will test you. See, because God's value system is different than our value system. We focus on the here and now. But as uh, Travis brought out last week, real, real perspective in life, sober thinking life, doesn't simply look at the here and now. It has an eternal perspective. It doesn't just look at the physical. It looks into the spiritual dimension. In verse 11, that spiritual dimension is shown. Our purpose, notice verse 11 of the, the fourth chapter. It says, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So what he's saying, he's, he enters into this passage with life is really everything is about glorifying God. And so if that's your purpose in life, don't be surprised when, when suffering happens. You know, there's a verse that we use that Christians use to, to comfort ourselves and, and when things go wrong. And that's Romans 8, 28. And it says, God works all things. Or we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. So we look at that verse. And the way I used to read that verse was, God loves you, Bruce. And so he's going to work everything out for you. I, I held that view for quite a while. Uh, and it was reinforced by some preachers I heard. And then we had a chapel speaker. And he read that verse and he asked the question, whose good is God working everything toward? Yours or his? And it struck me at that moment that God isn't revolving the universe around me. He's revolving the universe around himself. And since I'm created and I'm his image, I will find fulfillment and joy only when I'm in line with him and living to glorify him. So, so if that's our attitude, then we shouldn't be surprised by whatever happens in our life because God is working it for his good. But if his good is my good, then it is also working toward my good. But notice also in this verse, he said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. It has come to test you. How do we respond to the test? What is God doing here? Essentially, he's measuring our hearts, our commitment to him. Will we still honor him and glorify him no matter what falls upon us? And 
when we think of that, we remember the story of Job. Do you remember the story of Job in the Old Testament? In that story, it begins with the devil joining angels in this audience before God. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? He's a righteous man. And Satan says, oh, the only reason he obeys you, the only reason he lives this way is because you bought him off. You bought him off. Look at, he has a wonderful family. He has all the treasures he would want. He's got complete perfect health. Nobody would worship you if you didn't buy him off. And so God says, have Adam. Go ahead. Take his possessions. And God does, and, and still Job praises him. Satan returns. He says, well, the only reason, only reason is, uh, I didn't realize he was as selfish as he is. He didn't care if uh, members of his family died or he lost possessions. He's all about his health, but if you touched his health, he would curse you. And God allows him to. And even Job's wife says, why don't you curse God and, and just die? That's better than suffering like this. And Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so Job is tested. But Job struggles. He struggles. And the one thing he wants from God is he said, God, can you tell me why? And God never told him why. We know why. What if God told Job why? What if God gave Job the choice at the very beginning? Job, you can have a life that just continues with all, all the blessings you have, or you can have a life of suffering. But that suffering will be for my glory. You see, Job, Satan has come up and he's challenged my glory. He says, no one would worship me. And you know who I pointed out as my champion? It's you, Job. You're my champion. You are the one who's going to show the angelic realm and anyone else that I am worthy of glory. What would Job have said? I believe he would have said, I'll take that life of suffering. I am proud to be your champion to show that you are worthy of glory no matter what happens in my life. Don't be surprised when suffering comes upon us. It's not something strange. It is part of life. It is part of God's pathway where we can show his glory, that he is worthy of honor and glory and dominion, worthy of our love. Suffering is a part of God's plan, a loving plan. And it leads to glory. It isn't like we get all the bad stuff and none of the good stuff. We get a lot of good stuff by what God gives us in our relationship with him, in the transformation of our lives, and in his glory. We read verse 13. But rejoice! insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so what he's saying in this passage is, he's actually saying you can rejoice 
when you suffer like Christ. That's, that's hard, rejoicing. Why? Well, we sang the song from James 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its result in a transformation to make you mature or perfect, lacking in nothing. He's saying, when we, the suffering that comes into our life not only proves the God is worthy, but it starts working in our lives, transforming us. In fact, the Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. You know what the next verse says? For those whom he foreknew, excuse me, for, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And what God is saying is, I'm bringing things into your life through the goal of making you more like Christ, making you the person God created you to be. He created us to be God's image. The perfect representation of that image is Christ himself. And so as we participate in Christ's sufferings, we can consider, we can rejoice because of what it's producing in our lives. But he says, but we also rejoice and we're glad when his glory is revealed so that our eyes can be not just on what's happening now, but on that hope of when Christ returns, he is going to be glorified and we along with him. Now, see, if you love somebody, you want their glory more than you want your own glory. You know, um, at the high school, they have senior night, and it's, and it's awards nights, and they give away, it seems like, a hundred scholarships and awards. So I remember going for the first time with Karen to uh, Stephen's senior night. And uh, we were really concerned because we didn't think he would necessarily win an award. And we're, we're feeling for him. And we're just hoping every award that comes up, hey, no, that wouldn't fit, no, that wouldn't fit. Isn't there, isn't there an award that will fit Stephen? And our hearts kept sinking, sinking, sinking. And then they came to this award called the Kavanaugh Award. And the Kavanaugh Award is like, it seems to be the, the most important award because it, it hangs in the office at school. It's the only plaque that hangs in the office and and has all the names of the recipients. And as they started to talk about this person, they started saying, gee, that's, wait, that, that could be Stephen. And then it came down to, it, there's only two people that fit this description, Stephen or Jake. And then they said, Stephen Daggett, the winner of the Kavanaugh Award, which describes the most well-rounded person in the opinions of the teachers of scholarship, sportsmanship, and service to humanity. And you know, I was so proud. It was almost a surreal to see our son so honored, so glorified, 
I was so wanted that for him so much more than I would ever want that glory for myself. Because I love him. If we love God, we will want his glory more than anything for ourselves. But, but was it was interesting when they gave that award. They then said, the presenter then said, and, you know, the parents of Stephen must be so special. And then she went on for a minute about the parents of Stephen. And we were like, whoa. And, of course, the first thought we had was, uh, did Stephen get the award or somebody else? Because I, this is not a description of us. All that went through our minds were our failings as a parent. Uh, but, but we were glorified. And, you know, when Christ comes, the end is Christ will be glorified. And our, if we love him, that's going to be the greatest thing that we could experience. And then we're going to be lifted up too, and we're going to be glorified. And probably what we'll be thinking is, oh, are they speaking of me? <laughs> and I, I, I was such a failure. But when God is glorified, we will too. Um, Romans 8 continues. For those whom he before knew, he predestined to be conformed to the image in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, suffering will bring glory. We can wait for that. We can look forward to that. But uh, what about the here and now? Paul continues. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. And so what he's saying is you don't have to wait for the glory to be excited because even when you're reviled now, you can feel good about what you're doing for God. Because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't say because you have the Holy Spirit. He calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of glory and of God. The reason is both God the Father and God the Holy Spirit want Jesus Christ glorified. When Jesus spoke about the sending of the Holy Spirit, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth and he will glorify me. The passion of the Holy Spirit is to glorify God. And so what you'll find is when you're living out and you're understanding that this suffering is producing a transformed character, that this suffering is a stage in which you can show the glory of God, the Spirit of God within you is going to rejoice because that's his purpose. You read biographies of people who are persecuted, even martyred, and you will see them rejoicing while they're being persecuted because something supernatural is happening in our hearts. Christians have the Spirit of God that says, first of all, Abba, Father, and says, may Jesus Christ be glorified. 
And when he sees it happening, he ministers to our hearts in a very special way. You are blessed. So then Peter gives a little warning. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're glorifying God. Uh, verse 14, 15, and 16. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. So it's a warning here. Sometimes we bring suffering upon ourselves. God's not talking about that. He says that's not a blessing. And we deserve it. And he names murderers. We get that. Uh, murder, thief, evildoer. If, if we're like this, we deserve to be persecuted. We deserve to be punished. And of course, there's a shame with that and there's a shaming of God when those who carry the name of Christ do these things. But notice the fourth term there, meddler. I usually wouldn't put meddler with a murderer. Uh, Peter does. So what's a meddler? It's somebody who engages in other people's lives, uh, uninvited uh, to, to, to try to, to help them or push them into being what we want them to be. And so he's saying, don't, don't be a meddler. Don't be pushing into other people's lives, trying to control them and manipulate them. You deserve to be shamed for that. So... How does this show up today? Usually if Christians aren't being called murderers, thieves, but there are many televangelists, many pastors who have been caught up in scandals. They bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ. It should not happen. But also, sometimes the way we push people the insensitivity we have, the judgmentalism or the hypocrisy. People react to us because of what we're doing, not what the gospel is doing. That should not be a part of our lives. But thinking very specifically today and what's happening in our culture that's being rent apart, where people, it's no longer, I agree to disagree with you. If, if someone disagrees with you, they're, they're evil. We start calling them names and we attribute the most base motivations to them. And Christians can get caught up into that. And we need to warn you, especially in social media, when you see Christians being bashed and called names, how do we respond? Do we respond in kind or do we respond with love? I want to show you Paul's attitude. Paul was hunted as well. There were plots, plots against him where people would pledge, I won't stop until Paul is dead. He was arrested a number of times. He was beaten with rod. 
He was whipped with cat of nine tails. Once he was stoned to the point of death, everyone thought he was dead. They were after him. So how does Paul speak about them? We, we see it in Romans 9. He says this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about the Jewish people who either were seeking his life or standing by and letting it happen. And what does he say about them? What is his heart toward them? These enemies, these adversaries, these persecutors? He said, my heart is in anguish. I would, if I could, I would trade my salvation for theirs. Is that our heart toward our adversaries? When we're ready to post something online, is, is that what we're feeling toward the people we're going to speak to? The next chapter, he goes a step further and he goes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So we have this culture that's attributing the worst possible motives to people who disagree with us. Paul does the exact opposite. He attributes the best possible motives to those with whom he disagrees. They're sincere. They are sincerely seeking God, but they're doing it without knowledge. Is that the way we feel about adversaries? Are we attributing the best possible motives to those who revile us, who have different stands? Let me just give you one example. What really helped me, uh, clarified this for me, was an article I read entitled, How Christianity Gave Us Gay Marriage. It's a very intriguing title. So I read that, and, and what the article said was, Christianity gave us the message that everyone is valuable. Because we're made in God's image, each person is as valuable as every other person. Each person is to be treasured. Each person is to have rights. Each person is to be able to pursue life and their happiness. So Christians laid that foundation. Our culture took that foundation and then said, wait, so if a person is gay, they are as valuable as everybody else, and we say amen. They have rights as everybody else, we say amen. Therefore... They should be able to be married just like everyone else is. Now, you may have different stands as to where that is, but say you have the stand, which is pretty much where I'm at, is that marriage was designed by God for a man and a woman. What people have done is they've taken God's truth, but not known where it came from. 
And therefore, they don't take the next step in applying God's word. So what that did for me is to say, you know, people who disagree with me about things, they're not evil. They have some of the same desires I have where they've left the courses. They don't follow. They don't know these truths came from Scripture. And so they left the path of Scripture. They have a sincerity. They have a love for people, but not according to the knowledge of God. Let's not deserve to be reviled. Let us love as Christ loved. Respect one another. Give each other grace. We can stand out if we act differently than what's happening in our culture today. And Peter continues... Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, meaning you're you're living out that life, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so he's saying is, uh, see, he's speaking to a shame culture. And a shame culture is you know who you are, you know if you're good or bad by what your community says about you by whether it honors you or excludes you. So Peter's speaking into that shame culture, and he's saying, you know, when you're the community is going to be shaming you. Don't, don't let the community control you by shaming you. No, don't be ashamed, but instead glorify God's name. Keep living a life. No matter what people are saying around you, live that life that's going to glorify God. So, in other words, who are we listening to? Are we listening to the community and the voices around us and what they're saying about us? Are they going to mold our lives? Are we listening to what God says about us? And we've talked about this in a few sermons, about our identity in Christ as beloved priests to be that conduit between God and man, bringing God to man and man to God. Glorify God. Live out that life. So it does leave one last question. Okay, God, I'm getting it. Suffering is, I shouldn't be surprised at it because God's working all things toward his glory. I want his glory, so I'm on board but what about those people who are persecuting me? It doesn't really seem fair that I'm suffering and the people who are causing that suffering are getting away with it. In fact, they're honored for it. I don't get that, God. It does not seem just and right. And you're a just God. And so Peter's answer to that question is, It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Now, when you first read that, it almost sounds as though, Christians, the suffering your experience is a result of your personal sin. But the, the entire passage speaks the opposite of that. He's just said, don't let your suffering be a result of your personal sin. So that's not what he's saying. What he is saying here is humanity, this world, is broken. It's broken because of sin. See, God created the world. He created perfect. There was no death. There was no disease. There was no suffering. There was no persecution. But when humanity rebelled against God and sin entered into this world, it all got broken so that there is death, there is disease, there is suffering, there is bitterness, there is persecution. It's all the result of, of sin. And so the reason, if, if there wasn't sin in the world, Christians, you wouldn't be suffering. But God's allowing that suffering on you just like he allows suffering on everybody else. And so, if you look at what's happening right now, you're the ones who are experiencing the most suffering. So, the judgment of God on sin, it looks like it's right there focused on you. It begins in the household of God. It begins with us. But if you're outside the gospel, if you're outside the Christian faith, looking in and seeing faithful Christian suffering who follow God, what does that mean? By, and that's showing God's judgment on sin in general. What does that mean for me, who's rejecting God and persecuting Christians? What's God going to do to me? What's going to be the outcome on the ungodly and the sinner? If you're outside the faith, or Christians, if we're thinking of people who are outside the faith, God is saying there is a judgment. It's not what we like to say. It's not what we like to hear. And because we don't like to hear it, a lot of people either ignore it or deny it. I don't want there to be a judgment, therefore God won't be judging. It has no basis. The question is, what does God say? God must judge because he is just. We focus on God being loving and saying he's loving so he's going to let everybody in. This passage focuses on his justice. Because he is just, because he is holy, not everybody's in. Those outside the gospel are not in. Is that fair? Yes. Do we want God to be a just God? Or we just say, God be loving, but don't be just. You know, our hearts cry out for justice. Uh, remember after the Boston Marathon bombings, President Obama came and he spoke and he said this. He said, make no mistake, we will get to the bottom of this. We will find out who did this. We will find out why they did this. Any responsible individuals, any responsible groups will feel the full weight of justice. And we all said, yes.
as kids, one of the first things we, we, we learn to say over and over is, that's not fair. That's not fair. And unfortunately, we say, life's not fair. Why? Because it's broken. But God is fair and he is just. What was our response when al-Baghdadi came down, took his own life? We're saying justice was served. Today, the, the impeachment hearings, the Democrats are calling for justice. If the president has committed crimes, he needs to pay the price. He needs to be impeached. The Republicans are calling for justice. They're saying this is not a fair trial. This is not a, a just inquiry. Everybody wants justice except when it comes to our personal selves. But God has to be just. But that does not nullify his love. And so the dilemma God has, do I love him and let him, everybody in, but that's not just? Or is I just and condemn everybody, but that's not loving? But there's a place where love and justice came together, and that's at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's justice, the penalty for sin, was paid, not by us, but by Jesus because God so loved the world, he sent Christ to pay for our sins so that now God is just because the payment for sin has been made and he's loving because that payment was for us. We can have a relationship with God through the grace, not by what we do, but through the grace. Now, when we grasp that love, we will fall more deeply in love with Jesus. And the people we love, the ones we love, are the ones we want glorified more than ourselves. You know, the last verse sums up the passage. It sums up the entire book. So if you want to know the answer to the question of how should I live in a post-Christian culture, memorize this verse. And it says... Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Two pieces to that. While you suffer, know you have a faithful creator. Let yourself go into his arms, into his plans. And while you're doing that, do good. Don't act, don't return evil for evil. Return good for evil. Don't return hate for hate. Return love for hate. Don't look at and assign the most awful motivations to somebody else. Assign the best motivations to others. Wayne Grudem wrote, writes, Upon reflection, there is no better comfort in suffering than understanding this. It's God's good and perfect will. When we realize this, we will see that there's a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. And we also know that this suffering is only for our good. 
It's purifying us, drawing us closer to the Lord, making us more like Him. In all of it, we are not alone. We can depend on the care of a faithful Creator who can rejoice. We can rejoice in the fellowship of a Savior who also suffered. We can exalt in the constant presence of the Spirit of glory who delights to rest upon us. And we can be secure in the fact that our greatest desire is fulfilled, the glory of God. Our Father, we thank you for your word. May we not leave it in the sanctuary, but may your your spirit continue to minister it into our lives, transforming us, and on that stage of life, may we honor you, do good, and thereby glorify you. To the praise of Christ, amen.